Hi, I'm Kathleen Gallagher, Executive Director of Five Lakes Institute and host of How Did You Do That? Today, I'm excited to announce the launch of Midwest Moxie, a new show about our region's visionary entrepreneurs and the experiences that shape them. As the last episode in this feed, we're bringing you a special preview of this new show. You can subscribe and listen to the podcast by searching for Midwest Moxie in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, NPR One, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now, let's get into our first episode. This is Midwest Moxie, a show about our region's visionary entrepreneurs and the experiences that shape them. I'm your host, Kathleen Gallagher, Executive Director of Five Lakes Institute. Norman Sade always wanted to start a company, but there were so many other things to take care of. There was research into artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, supply chain management, privacy nudges, mobile app permissions, and more. The work would influence products developed at Apple, Boeing, Google, IBM, and many other companies. And then there were all the educational programs for graduate students to set up and run, and projects to coordinate for the European Commission. Finally, in 2008, 17 years after joining Carnegie Mellon University's computer science faculty, Norman started Wombat Security Technologies. He grew the Pittsburgh-based software company to more than 200 employees and 2,000 corporate customers before it was acquired in 2018 by California-based Proofpoint, Inc. for $225 million in cash. Norman, welcome to Midwest Moxie. Hello, Kathleen. Nice to be on your show. Hey, tell me, the first thing you did when you completed your PhD's dissertation in 1991 was to take a class in entrepreneurship. But then you didn't start Wombat until 2008. Why not? I always had the intention of starting a company. And as you pointed out, I, I took an entrepreneurship course right after getting my PhD. And as I had just joined the, the faculty at Carnegie Mellon, and I wanted to commercialize technology out of my dissertation. Uh, but these were very different days. We're talking 1991 here. And uh, the university, honestly, was not completely set up to enable a faculty to remain with the university and start a company at the same time. So it was really an either or proposition. And uh, truly being a professor at Carnegie Mellon is actually a, a pretty nice job. It's a pretty unique uh, position to be in. It's a fairly prestigious one. And so I was not necessarily ready to uh, completely give up uh, that position. Uh, I was hoping that one could do both and that turned out to be very difficult. So you focused on the professor stuff, but then you had a stint at the European Commission. Why, why were you there? Well, life has interesting twists and turns. So I um, uh, made contact with people in Europe and I said, wow, this guy is from Europe, but you know, he's a professor at Carnegie Mellon Computer Science. We've got all these research programs and we could really use someone with his background. And so they made me a very, very nice offer. And I eventually became chief scientist of the European initiative in e-commerce, which was uh, basically $650 million uh, to uh, fund uh, projects with industry and academia. And so it was hard to, to say no to that. Uh, and so I went there. This was a bit of a detour, but really interesting one. I learned quite a bit in the process, was able to not just fund research, but contribute to policy at the time, which was very exciting. But I always knew that you know, eventually I would come back to the US. So I kept the door open at Carnegie Mellon and uh, 
uh, at, uh, when the time was right, they made me an offer to come back full time and I accepted the offer. So I was back at Carnegie Mellon in 2000, still thinking that, boy, I really want to start that company eventually. Uh, and uh, uh, to make a long story short, at that point, I was getting pretty close to becoming a full professor. And so I thought, OK, I'm just coming back here from the European Commission. There are a few years that you need to, to ramp up again as a professor, get through your promotions. And so I was eventually uh, given a full professor position in 2007. And roughly the next month, I went back to saying, OK, uh, you know, let's go ahead now and start that company. And I had three different ideas I was pursuing. And, and one back is the one that sort of rose to the top. Well, and you had kept your finger and you were f dealing with startups in Europe and you were mentoring startups. So you, you were learning a lot about startups, but you said you had three ideas. Um, why did Wombat rise to the top? So, you know, professors do research on all sorts of different things. And uh, a lot of my research uh, is always conducted with the idea that, you know, hopefully there is a way to really have a big impact here. And uh, so I was looking at three different ideas, uh, very different ideas. One was actually in supply chain management, and it had to do about, you know, uh, how to go about tra using trading technologies, automated trading technologies to reduce your costs and be uh, more competitive in your supply chain. Another one had to do with privacy in social networks. And the third one had to do with cybersecurity and combating phishing attacks. And all three of those were rooted in projects I had at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, and so in uh, 2007, when I looked at all three of these, I sort of explored a bit, you know, what the interest was, how ready was the market for these technologies. And very quickly, phishing rose to the top. So we were actually, we had this project at Carnegie Mellon, and we're starting to get inquiries from industry saying pretty much, how can I get your technology? How can we use this? And uh, when you hear that, it's a sign. It's a sign that seems to be demand here. We're not completely crazy with this research. And, and so I want to be clear, phishing is when you get an email and you click on it thinking it's a good offer or something, and you end up allowing an intruder into your computer, right? That's correct. So phishing in its original form takes place uh, using email, and that's still the most common form today. So they pretend to be your bank. They pretend to be the IRS. They pretend to be all sorts of different entities. They can write, you know, somewhat credible emails, but somewhere in there, there's going to be a link, and that link will take you to a website that's not the uh, the website that you think you're connecting to, and that's how they're going to get your credentials or potentially infect your computer with malware. And that's a that's basically one of the biggest source of vulnerability today in cybersecurity. So uh, something like 95% uh, or so of the targeted attacks on on big organizations start with a very simple phishing email. So it doesn't matter how strong your technical defenses are, at the end of the day, they're taking advantage of human weaknesses. Well, that's what's so interesting to me about the way you looked at this company. You're this highly technical guy, but you didn't look at it just from a technical perspective. Wombat was really a human and technical solution. Can you explain how Wombat did that? Yeah, so this goes back to 2004, 2005, when I put together a proposal for funding to the National Science Foundation uh, that basically said, look, uh, you know, these phishing attacks, they're growing fast and it doesn't look like they're going to go anywhere. And the traditional technical solutions in this space don't really seem to make much of a difference. So how about, you know, recognizing that this problem is in great part a human problem. And if we're going to try to address it, right, taking a pure technical approach is not gonna cut it. Why not take the human and make the human, the human user, part of the solution. 
and so that was the basis for different solutions that my colleagues and I uh, developed. Uh, some of them very much uh, driven by learning science principles and others just based on machine learning techniques and combinations of, of those things. And the basic idea that we came up with, which looked very weird to people at the time, was you know, if you're going to try and train people, which, you know, traditionally fails because you get these messages from system administrators say, do this, do that, pay attention to this. People just don't even read these emails. They move on and, and those emails are just a nuisance. So if you really want to get people's attention, you've got to take a different approach. And uh, many people also have this false sense of safety and security, like, oh, nobody's going to come after me. I'm, you know, such a small fish in the organization. Why, why would it come at me? Or they've got this false sense that perhaps here, I know what a phishing email looks like. I'm never going to fall for one. And so the key really we, we, we realized was to show people that, hey, you are susceptible to these phishing attacks. You could fall for them and use that to create an opportunity to train them. And what better way is there to do that than to actually send them a fake phishing email? And when they click on that link, instead of obviously doing something bad, you say, aha, look, it looks like you, you, you're not necessarily as smart as you might have thought. And, you know, by the way, these are the things you could have noticed that, you know, you might want to use in the future to avoid falling for that. So the vast majority of people who get these uh, attacks uh, will, you know, if, if they fall for them, and many of them do, it's pretty amazing how many people fall for these things. Uh, they will take the training, they're going to pay attention to training, they're going to remember what to do for, for a while. Uh, but they don't remember forever. And from a business standpoint, that turned out to be a blessing. Because when we started selling our solutions, our customers realized that they had to continue licensing our solutions forever. But in the early days, this, this looked pretty crazy to people. But the, the truth is, this has become today the de facto standard for training people. So you started Wombat during the financial crisis. Your co-founders kind of wanted to give it away. You convinced them that this was a good business idea, and you threw yourself into it. You continued full-time as a professor. You were working six days a week, 16 hours a day, because you were doing both for three years. What made you throw yourself into it like that? Uh, well, um, as I said, I, I always wanted to start a company. And you know, I had looked at these three different options I had available to me. And it was very clear when you compare those three that this one looked like it really had promise. This, this fishing problem, right, was already pretty big at the time. And it was clear that nothing was going to change the situation uh, anytime soon. Uh, and, and so I really felt very strongly about this. Not everybody did. When I, I would go and pitch this idea, people would look at me and say, yeah, what, what's, what's the deal with this? There are tons of cybersecurity companies out there, you know, why, why should I you know, invest in you? So th there was this reaction. As far as convincing my co-founders to not give away the technology, uh, it was not super, super difficult, but there is this tendency at universities to feel that, hey, this was developed with government funding, so maybe we should not you know, try to make even more money out of it. Maybe we should just make it available to the public. Uh, and uh, you know, I told my colleagues that I felt differently. I told them that, look, this thing here, you know, we've done some good stuff at Carnegie Mellon, but the need is much broader than what we've developed. There are additional products that you would want to add to this, and this could really be a huge market. And so if we want to you know, have a bigger impact, honestly, and given that not everybody believes in us just yet, right? I think we should do this ourselves. And I volunteered to take the lead on that. And uh, they were nice enough to say, hey, Norman, go ahead if you want. This is your time. You're taking the risk that you want to take. And, 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 uh, and so they let me do it, and they helped me in the process. And a uh, little bit by little bit, they realized that this, you know, turned out to be a pretty good idea. 
Tell us about a big challenge you faced in growing the company. In growing the company. Um, so I think one of the um, initial challenges obviously had to do with the fact that, as you pointed out, we started a company in 2008 and we're talking to a bunch of prospective customers at that time, including big banks. And uh, it looked like we're going to get a ton of customers pretty quickly. And then when a financial crisis hits, uh, those financial institutions uh, all of a sudden got very different priorities and some of the funding that was promised to us evaporated. Uh, and that really forced us to be uh, you know, very, very lean and very nimble. And uh, that was also one of the reasons why I stayed on for three years as, as CEO. Uh, and it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. It really forced us to be extremely focused. Uh, and so we grew the company really with seed money and we're lucky enough to get uh, about $1.7 million in uh, SBIR grants also from, uh, from the government. Uh, but basically being you know, very nimble uh, in the early days was uh, certainly uh, not necessarily what I had anticipated early on, but it really proved to be a blessing in these guys. Like I said, we're uh, eventually able to grow the company to several hundred customers before we had our Series A. And uh, you know, when I look today at companies that raise money with no customers and have pretty amazing evaluations, uh, that was not what we dealt with uh, you know, in 2008, 2009, 2010. Would you ever do another startup? I think so. I think it's, you know, it's, uh, I, I really enjoy the process. I'm, I've also learned it took me 10 years between the time we, uh, uh, you know, incorporated the time we sold the company. I've, I've seen what it takes. It, it, it's not a walk in the park, even though we really had a very straight uh, trajectory. Uh, it's not like we had to reboot or we had to pivot. You know, you hear pivoting all the time but from companies. We didn't have to pivot. We really had uh, about as straight a trajectory as you can hope to have. Nevertheless, it took us 10 years. It was a ton of work. I truly enjoy it. And so I, I would love to do it again, but I'm a bit selective also. Uh, obviously, I, I did well with Wombat, and, and so the bar is relatively high. And so I'm looking at a number of different things, but I've not, you know, I've, I've not taken the plunge again yet, but hoping to do that at some point. Well, stay tuned. You know, it was great hearing your story and um, look forward to hearing your next story when you get that finished. Thanks so much, Norman. Thank you so much for having me. You can read more about today's guest by visiting wuwm.com. Don't forget, you can also listen to the show as a podcast if you'd like to take us on the go. Just search for Midwest Moxie wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is Midwest Moxie, a show about our region's visionary entrepreneurs and the experiences that shape them. I'm your host, Kathleen Gallagher. Executive Director of Five Lakes Institute. Tara Linda Willis had never really thought about founding a company, but when she started helping her husband Dale dream up ideas for commercializing technologies that he was working on in his PhD program, one thing definitely led to another. The couple in 2016 founded Curate Solutions. Dale led the technology side and Tara Linda became CEO. Curate grew to 25 employees, and its technology tracks city and county committee meeting minutes and agendas for more than 12,000 municipalities across the U.S. The company was acquired in 2021 by Washington, D.C.-based FiscalNote for an undisclosed price. 
Tara Linda, welcome to Midwest Moxie. Thanks, Kathleen. Happy to be here. Let's just start. No one in your family had ever started a company. Your undergraduate degree is in athletic training, and you were pursuing an MBA to become a project manager in construction. How did you get pulled into Curate? So I don't think anybody's journey is necessarily a straight line, and mine is no exemption to that. Uh, I had always really loved things that I had done that were really chaotic. Um, And I also loved being part of something that is ever changing. I don't like to be bored. And I had always helped Dale a little bit on the side. Uh, While I was working on my MBA, he'd always had some other project going on. And I jokingly called that my real life MBA. Uh, When you work inside of a business or starting something, I think you learn so much more outside of what you learn inside of a textbook. And that really just snowballed. Um, We were accepted into Generator, got a little bit of funding, Generator's an accelerator program, and really never looked back. Um, But I can tell you that everybody in my life was concerned. Uh, We were barely paying ourselves. This idea was very fledgling. Lots of people tried to talk me out of it, but I never looked back. And I thought it was, first of all, very chaotic and also really fun. Well, you mentioned Generator. You know, one of the things that contributed to at least your financial woes is you and Dale got into that program, and then Joe Kurgis, co-founder of Generator, got you to quit your job, right? Yes, he did. Do you want to hear how? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So... I had been pretty involved in the application of Generator. It's a very competitive accelerator program, except I think 1%. And that year we got in was no exception. And kickoff weekend, um, we went to a piano bar and really kind of more of a social get to know you. And uh, over a few Jaeger bombs came out that actually on Monday in two days, this is Saturday night, I was planning on going back to my full-time job, which was not working on the business. Joe got wind of that and uh, convinced me to quit my job. So I walked in on Monday morning and put in my notice. Do you mean convinced or guilt-tripped? Maybe a little of both. (laughs) (laughs) So another thing Joe did for you is he hired a a trainer for you to teach you how to do cold calls? Yes. Uh, Once we were at the point where we had a product to sell, which took us a little bit of time, Joe really focused on um, helping Curate be successful and helping it grow. And so uh, an executive coach like kicked my butt and told me to cold call. Uh, it's very scary and intimidating when this is your thing that you're spending 100% of your time on to, in order to pick up the phone and face that potential rejection or somebody hanging up or worst case scenario, somebody telling you that they don't want it or don't think that that's a good idea. But I did it and uh, I was actually successful at it. You know, as long as we're talking about sales, one of the other things, you you like to joke that you've done your own version of 1 million cups because you do so many coffee meetings. Tell us about that. Why why do you take all those meetings? So I I take those meetings to really learn about the world. Um, It's always an interesting opportunity to be able to learn about people's needs inside of business and what they need in their work and where things are lapsing. And so I really took that opportunity to listen to customer needs uh, or potential customer needs. A lot of things obviously were a ton of dead ends. Uh, When you have coffee with anybody, you're bound to find lots of things that don't work, but that keeps your foot on the gas of what 
is working and what does work. Well, let's step back a minute. I want to get come back to those coffee meetings, but talk about what it took to build Curate's first product. Your product goes and gets information, trolls websites of governments and gets information for people, right, for, about meetings and agendas. What, what did it take to build that? Oh, a heavy dose of crazy, for being honest. Well, first of all, thinking about sales, what's really important to me is that I get real honest feedback from customers. And the best way to get that feedback is for people to exchange money for your service or for your product. I think people are much more uh, transparent and honest and even brutally honest as can be really helpful. So when I, we knew kind of the direction we were going, um, but hadn't actually, there was nothing to show. So all I could do was like talk about it. And once we had actually a paying customer, uh, I went back to the office, it's Dale and I and one poor, poor intern. Um, And we, we're able to gather the data, um, but we didn't, we today use a lot of artificial intelligence in order to process and pull the right information out of that data. We built those models from scratch. So day one, the first product we went through, I believe it was 144,000 lines in an Excel doc looking for very specific pieces of information. We were committed obviously to not doing that forever. We knew that wasn't a long-term solution, but that helped us get some really good feedback. Uh, I continued to sell what I call the Excel doc version for the next probably about six months. And when you're doing something that matters, like the format does not matter. Like the data mattered. Uh, Being able to get information other people was challenging to get mattered. Um, And we continue to scale and build that into a repeatable product and happy to report that now we have a lot of modeling that we do. Nobody's looking at an Excel doc. Your product is not spreadsheets anymore. You've got a dashboard that people can go and find their information on, right? Yes. Because we started with that spreadsheet, we were able to build exactly what people wanted. We didn't have any ego about it. We were really focused on exactly what people need, what they told us they wanted um, through customer advisory boards. And that's what we built, which is really cool to see our customers essentially design the product in real time. Tell us what kind of stuff do your, I know you have construction companies, realtors, utilities, what kinds of things are they looking for in your dashboard? Yeah, we boil it down to two different groups. So people are either looking to reduce risk. So they're concerned about fees changing or usually increasing, a tax is changing, um, regulations are changing, um, everything from, you know, more recently mass mandates and COVID vaccine requirements, even into things like the sign code can be some huge, um, can be some huge risk. The other side of the business, people are looking for finding opportunities. So they're either looking for finding the next um, construction opportunity, they're looking for um, an opportunity in an insurance market, all kinds of interesting and unique things. But we work with a few hundred different customers in like pretty much every industry you can think of. Well, tell about one of your big breakthroughs was having coffee with someone from a real estate trade organization, right? Yes. So as part of the discovery process, I focused on having coffee with anybody that would have coffee with me. Um, I felt really lucky that in the Madison ecosystem, uh, lots of people are really helpful, um, even outside of formal channels and just making connections. And so I was connected to someone who runs um, the Wisconsin Realtor Association. Realtors obviously have a lot of land use concerns in municipalities, you know, big serious things all the way to really 
small things like the sign code, for example. And I met with Tom and he said, this is really important to us. And I really think you should take a really critical look at this and we're willing to try it. And that grew into us looking at all kinds of uh, things on the legislation side outside of construction. And that really just started with like, it was probably six degrees between me and Tom when we started, but it all happened with coffee. What makes Curate better than any of its competitors? Oh, there are lots of things I think any company can do to be better than their competitors. But for us, it was staying hyper-focused on our exactly what we do and we do well. So we stopped taking on early in the company's business. You, Somebody says, can you do that? And as an entrepreneur, nine times out of 10, your answer is like, yep, even though it makes no sense. Um, but what we eventually did as we matured is we stayed hyper-focused on our swim lane. And that allowed us to stay inside of municipalities. And that was a section that nobody was doing well. There's lots of state and federal legislation trackers out there, bid procurement things, but really we were deep in the weeds with municipalities and it really mattered. Uh, We heard that over and over again that nobody is doing this well. And so we just kept focusing on it. So uh, I don't know, we track like 400,000 meetings on a weekly basis all across the US, everything but towns from no stoplight to New York City and everything in between. Um, Staying focused has really helped us be successful. You've continued with Fiscal Note. What kind of opportunities does that bring for you and for Curate? Yeah, it's a lot of fun to watch the organization that I've built become a business unit and uh, see the growth continue to explode. Fiscal Note has a huge, uh, really well-oiled machine in sales, which is a lot of fun for me to be part of. Um, instead of deep in the weeds, I get to take on an advisory role and sit in on calls and really enjoy and share the passion of what I've built over the last, you know, five plus years. And I am having a lot of fun and see a lot of opportunity there for Curate to continue to grow, develop. Would you ever do another startup? I think so, but I'm still pretty busy. We've been with Fiscal in about 120 days. So asking a couple of years. Give us some of your advice for other entrepreneurs. What would, what would you say to people starting out on that journey? One thing that uh, has helped us be successful is really staying focused. Uh, It seems really silly to say because everybody is always so focused on their business, uh, but a business can be really wide. And when you really focus on the small piece of your business that's scalable, repeatable, and successful, uh, you can, and saying no is probably the hardest thing to do as an entrepreneur, but being able to not take on crazy outside of the swim lane projects, you can actually see more growth that way. The other thing that I think that uh, I've done anyway to be successful is being willing to build a mature sales process. So understanding founder-led sales, it's a different animal, right? People buy for very irrational reasons. People buy because they believe in the product, they believe in the entrepreneur, they believe in the industry. And understanding how you as a founder can best insert yourself in the process. I personally realized that I am not very good at cold calling because I cannot get myself to pick up the phone because it's so incredibly personal to me. But I love building relationships with people once a meeting has been set. So early on in the process, I hired two employees and helped them learn how to make calls, get on the phone, 
build a repeatable process with some sequences. And then I would take the meeting and build that relationship. You know, that grows and evolves as the company continues to mature. You can't do that all of the time, but really understanding where you can be successful and how you can drive value for the organization. It's helped curate. Tara Linda, it's been great talking with you and congratulations on all the success you've had with your focus and sales at Curate. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our first episode of Midwest Moxie. Don't forget, this is the last time you'll hear a podcast in this feed. You can subscribe and listen to Midwest Moxie as a podcast if you'd like to take us on the go. Just search for Midwest Moxie in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your host, Kathleen Gallagher. Midwest Moxie was created by executive producer Audrey Nowakowski and me. Today's episode was produced by Audrey Nowakowski. To hear this show on the air, join us next Sunday at 7 p.m. when we'll be talking with more visionary Midwestern founders building innovative companies. That's right here on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.